0: Hello, I'm Mallory Rubin.
1: And I'm Van Lathan.
0: Check out the Ringerverse podcast from The Ringer for all things superhero movies, nerd culture, and fandom entertainment.
1: We have instant reviews and fun takes on all the latest news and more available now on Spotify.
2: This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote vs. the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote. Once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed The Swans, starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown, as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including Outstanding Drama Series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. All right, it is Wednesday, May 11th, And today we're talking about the biggest property in entertainment, Marvel. This is how much I respect my guest today, Sean Fennessy. I actually went to see Doctor Strange in the Multitude of Madness. Multitude of Madness. Multiverse. (laughs) Multiverse (laughs) of Madness. Multitude sounds like a dissertation. Um, But yeah, today we're going to be talking to Sean Fennessy about Marvel. And we're going to pose the question, does Marvel have a problem? It's coming off a couple of less than stellar outings. Uh, Moon Knight kind of got trashed by a lot of the critics and some of the Marvel fans on Disney Plus and Eternals didn't do so great. Uh, Doctor Strange 2, mixed reviews. Sean loved it, but got to say, not for me. I'm not a normal regular Marvel movie viewer, but I did see WandaVision and I thought I kind of knew what was going on in this one. Uh, turns out it didn't really matter. Didn't love it anyways. But we're going to talk a little bit about Marvel, its path forward, whether it has issues creatively, financially, where it goes from here. Uh, first, Craig, the poll we did on Monday's show after I drafted my streaming service picks for 2022 versus Lucas's. You did a poll on Twitter to say who's got the better team. 72% of people on Twitter said that I had the better team.
1: A real statement out of Team Bellamy. It really is. I I feel like I I dunked on Lucas. Some people made the joke that it it looked like you had the first
2: three picks. I did have first pick. I picked HBO Max. Then I went with Netflix and Amazon Prime Video as my other two. But Lucas had his shot. He ended up picking Disney Plus with the inclusion of Hulu, um, Apple TV Plus, and Paramount Plus. I'm still sticking with it. I still think I got the stronger team. We'll check back in in 10 years yes we will the, the town uh, anniversary special will focus on who won a twitter poll in 2022. <laughs> all right but enough about twitter polls let's get to the topic marvel i'm matt Bellany, and this is the town all right we are here with sean Fennessy, the first ever ringer verse crossover sean is the host of the big picture podcast which is excellent he is also co-host of the rewatchables one of my favorite podcasts Sean, we are going to pose a question today that might seem crazy to anyone who looks at the bottom line of the Walt Disney Company or, you know, takes a peek at what matters in the culture right now. Does Marvel have a problem? And I want to pose that to you based on some of the noise we're hearing in the greater cultural world about the recent Marvel releases, some of the Streaming shows on Disney+. Plus. And do you think that Marvel has a creative problem?
0: I think it has a problem insofar as it has been around now for a long time. And it's a part of our cultural wallpaper. And there's expectation bound into every single thing that they put out, which is that it has to be a smash hit. So every time something doesn't go exactly as planned, everybody gets a little bit antsy. Doctor Strange 2 just came out. It did incredible box office numbers, especially coming out of the pandemic. You can give some of the details of that, but it performed well on the surface. And so short-term, everything seems fine. Long-term, amongst fans and amongst casual people, and both of those people are important, I think, to the Marvel game, there's a little bit of anxiety, frustration, confusion as to where a lot of this is all heading. There's a lot of stuff. Marvel movies used to be two, three times a year, and they were mega events. Now we have multiple shows, multiple movies, new characters, and no clear direction of where the big-time story is going. And so I think there's something under the surface happening that portends rocky waters ahead.
2: And you are citing, you know, film Twitter and, you know, some of the sites that chronicle this and kind of buzz. Um, Because I'm looking at the creative metrics here. Uh, If you look at the cinema scores through 28 Marvel films, that's the survey that this company cinema score does on opening night. Marvel movies have 25 A's, meaning for 25 movies, viewers have given the movies A's. Three A pluses for Avengers, Black Panther, and Endgame. They also have three B's. One was for the first Thor, and now they've got two in a row for Eternals and Doctor Strange 2. So that indicates that there's some dissatisfaction with these two recent movies. I, I think
0: that's pretty important, <laughs> I think, because yeah. I think like, an overwhelming amount of uh, fealty to the Marvel brand has been a big story of their rise over the last 10 years. Oh, the fan- absolutely. The fandom is ludicrously, insanely obsessed with the storytelling. And the idea that we're now two movies in a row, two movies that you I think you could make the case are both digressions from their core story and also are risks in terms of the filmmakers that they worked with, the tone of the stories that they told. The fact that audiences didn't love them the way that they loved a lot of their other previous films is a little bit of a canary in the coal mine, I think, for what may be going on here. Now, it could just be that this is just random coincidence that two movies in a row from Chloe Zhao, from Sam Raimi, didn't totally match expectations. I actually liked the Sam Raimi version of an MCU movie. Personally, I'm a huge Sam Raimi fan. He's not necessarily going to be for everyone, especially when working in the horror mode. So maybe it's just a coincidence, but I think when you compound that, with what's going on with the TV shows, which I think it's fair to say have been very hit or miss, then all of a sudden, the brand is softer and people are not necessarily guaranteed to get something that they love every time they turn on a Marvel product. So, I don't know. I mean, like, I think you can the numbers that you can cite that are indisputable are the fact that we're now coming off of Spider-Man No Way Home and we now have Doctor Strange and these are really the two biggest movies of the last nine months at movie theaters?
2: Right. And I'm not counting No Way Home on the cinema score they because that one got an a plus and i you know for some reason i i because it's released by sony i didn't i don't count that one even though it was produced by marvel uh, the eternals got a 47 on rotten tomatoes rough which low for all marvel movies and that's something where the critics have sort of come around to marvel i think there was some reluctance at first and they you know have said you know what these are crowd pleasers. Everybody seems to love them. The critics kind of give them a pass. And some of them, like Black Panther, were just critical runaways. Uh, but I think that's also turning. Let's look at the, some of the Disney plushes. Because if you look at the financial metrics, there's no problem here. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at Shang-Chi, $432 million globally at the box office during the pandemic. Eternals did, still did $400 million globally and that was a you know a particularly bad point of the pandemic when omicron doctor strange 150 185 million domestic opening 450 million global debut gigantic um, and even the disney plus shows i mean a lot of people harped on hawkeye as being not particularly good but nielsen shows that during the first week of that show on disney plus 14.2 million hours viewed, second only to The Mandalorian Season 2. Even Loki, Falcon the Winter Soldier, WandaVision, Moon Knight, they're doing really well on Disney+. Plus. So if you look at the actual metrics that Disney is looking at, there's no real
0: problem there yet. I think that that's true that people will tune in. Whether they'll stick around and get invested in new characters is a huge part of the challenge here. So Hawkeye... One, there's built-in awareness. Jeremy Renner's a movie star. They've seen Hawkeye in all the Avengers movies. They're excited to see him plugged into a TV show. The latest show that's premiered recently is Moon Knight. Oscar Isaac and Ethan Hawke in a new show. Two well-known actors, but a character that no one's really heard of. Even by the standards of Marvel fandom, Moon Knight is is definitely a B-tier character. And only 7 million people tuned in for that one. Half the audience. And so that is a signal maybe of the fact that we're in a post-Robert Downey Jr. world. We're in a post-Chris Evans world. Sadly, we're in a post-Chadwick Boseman world. And as old stars move off the frame and new stars move into the frame and new characters, which is essentially the lifeblood of this story, move into the story. If you don't know Moon Knight or you don't care about Haley Steinfeld's character in Hawkeye, what does that mean for the continuation of success long term? I'm not, I, I think it's I think it challenges it for sure.
2: I, I agree with that. And I think that. Marvel also, you know, just from an inside Hollywood perspective, they haven't been as willing to pay for the top creators and mm-hmm. writing talent that some of the other companies are paying for now. So, if you want to work for Marvel now, there are exceptions. Obviously, you you know that if, if you want to get Oscar Isaac for a TV show, you've got to pay him. But they have not paid for the -the behind-the-scenes talent in the same way that some of the others have. And they're probably going to have to change that. I've heard some rumblings that it is changing. Um, But yeah, they leaned on the Avengers to launch these Disney Plus shows and had well-known characters in TV land. That was a huge draw. But for some of these things going forward, is anyone going to show up for a She-Hulk show? I mean, I love Tatiana Maslany, but does She-Hulk matter to anyone and i think that that's the problem is that for so many years marvel was questioned and kevin feige was questioned like is anyone like what is guardians of the galaxy really like a talking raccoon what is ant-man is that going to be all the way back to iron man i I remember when people were like what is iron man why would anyone go see a bc level character in a movie they've constantly proven that they can create franchises out of lesser known characters and that is where they're struggling at this point in my opinion
0: well there's one interesting aspect to the Doctor Strange 2 success which is that if you did not watch WandaVision that film would probably be pretty confusing. You could you could get most of what they were after but critical parts of the story are related to a TV show and that's really the first time they've ever done that where they've tried to clearly link one of their shows with one of their movies. In the past the movies were true events. You you know covering the business for years and years Marvel movies were You would build your editorial calendar around the release of a Marvel movie. And now, because basically it's an always-on proposition, there's always a show or there's always a film that's rolling in theaters, that eventized aspect has been lessened, dampened. And the fact that you have to watch a TV show to get what's going on in a movie also makes it feel like it is more for hardcore fans and not for general audience. And the thing that I'm really interested in is long-term, the fans are always going to be there. I grew up reading Marvel comics. I love the Marvel stories what Feige did is basically the entertainment box office story of the century. I mean, he what he has accomplished is truly amazing. And I'm always going to watch those movies. Even when I'm 60 years old, I'm going to be watching these movies if they're making them. But I don't know if the person who's like, I'd be happy to show up for The Avengers 1 is going to still be on this ride 10 years from now. And that's actually something they have to worry about because connectivity and continuity is a huge part of the way they built their success and getting people continue to be hooked on every story that they tell moon Knight, like that people who love marvel i was in the office yesterday at the ringer talking to people about this who love marvel straight up did not like moon Knight, did not enjoy the show i can't remember the last time somebody who was an obsessive fan said something like that now this is anecdotal i can't lean on data to support this but there's a vibe going on right now that is indisputable
2: yeah and Doctor Strange 2 was a little bit gorier, kind of had horror elements and also turned off some of the younger fans. I know that, you know, friends of mine who have kids that are in the like, you know, six to eight year old range were like, no, 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 this one's not for them. Um, but, you know, you, there's this balance that you have to strike because Marvel has had tons of success plugging interesting filmmakers into the marvel machine i mean you mm-hmm. have people like uh, ryan fleck and anna bowden doing captain marvel you have you know you, the russo brothers were directing episodes of community when they were hired and all of a sudden they have the highest grossing movie of all time in endgame and what they've done what, what feige has done is he has taken over the last two movies really idiosyncratic filmmakers in Chloe Zhao and Sam Raimi and tried to plug them into this formula, but given them a little bit more freedom. If you look at these two movies, they are more like Chloe Zhao and Sam Raimi movies than the previous Marvel filmmakers have been on their movies. So is that a mistake? Is it is it a mistake to stray too much from the Marvel formula or do you need to constantly kind of tweak it? I mean, the, the adage in Hollywood is, Do it the same, but different. You know, that's what succeeds is it's got to be a little bit different. So the audience feels like it's fresh, but it's got to be familiar enough where they know it and it's comfort food and they're going to go back and back and back. And did he stray too much with these two filmmakers?
0: I don't think so. I think actually, if you look at his history and his taste in, in directors and the way that he's been able to blend his vision of how they tell this story long term with the tone of individual filmmakers. This is someone who got James Gunn, Ryan Coogler, and Taika Waititi to direct three of the best films they've ever made. Those are three very different, very unusual directors who have very distinct points of view. James Gunn being hired to direct Guardians of the Galaxy was an extremely bold choice, and he made that work. And he made it work because James Gunn was the right person to direct a movie. Chloe Zhao is an amazingly accomplished and gifted filmmaker. I never thought that made any sense for a Marvel movie. The tone of her films, her previous films... Basically, has nothing to do with any of the tone of any storytelling in Marvel. It's cool that they identified her as someone who could or should make one, but it was pretty clear within the first five minutes of that movie that it wasn't a match. And the Sam Raimi thing it, that just feels like a, you know, like trying to plug the dam. They lost a filmmaker in Scott Derrickson on that on that project. Kevin Feige knows Sam Raimi. Going back to the original Spider-Man films, the Tobey Maguire. Sam Raimi is a legend in the superhero storytelling world. He's also a legend in the horror world. This was a true convergence of those two things. It felt like a like a marriage of convenience and friendship more so than like the apps. The a bold choice to choose an unusual filmmaker. I think we'll just have to wait and see what happens in the future. You know, sometimes they choose filmmakers like Kate Shortland. Do you even remember who Kate Shortland is? Matt? I do not. Who's that? <laughs> Kate Shortland is the director of Black Widow, which is a movie that came out a couple of years ago, and no one knew who that was. She was an Australian filmmaker. I thought pretty accomplished, you know, action storyteller in some ways, but she has no name recognition. And that movie did fine business in the middle of a pandemic and we moved on and we didn't, there was no anxiety about it. So it's an interesting challenge for him because I think he knows, Feige knows that you can get headlines and that you can tell a different story when you choose a different filmmaker every time. The story that he's been able to tell by handpicking Kugler is, I mean, it's amazing. Black Panther, lest we forget, was the cultural phenomenon of the year that it was released. So, I think that, and he hired like, him off of Fruitvale Station. Exactly. So that's pretty. He does have great vision when it comes to these things, but you can be wrong sometimes. the The Eternals one in particular was, um, I think, more egregious even than Doctor Strange too, because that's a story that was essentially fully disconnected from the stories that they told previously. It was much more cosmic. Maybe it's leading the way towards where the stories are going to go, but it was an, an ill fit of director vision characters they chose casting a lot of things went wrong on that movie so it looked bad I mean for a closed out movie to look bad is very strange anyhow um I think but you know what pushing. like
2: this is we're harping on this one movie but if you look at the fact that he's had 28 Marvel movies now with very very few misses I mean you could argue that Thor the dark world was probably a miss and some of you know there have been choices that have been odd but you know when you're dealing in volume like that it's an it's a It's percentages. I mean, this is a business that is built on, you just want to have more hits than non-hits. I mean, look at Pixar. Pixar was the, by far, darling of the animation industry. And once it started upping the volume of movies that it made, from one every couple of years, to one a year, to maybe two a year they started to see a drop-off in quality overall. Doesn't mean there aren't great films, but there are a lot of films that, not a lot, but some films that aren't up to that Pixar standard from those early years. And that's just the cost of doing business if you want to produce films at scale. So I don't think there's a huge cause for alarm at Marvel just yet. It's
0: just that the laws of averages mean they're going to have some stinkers. There's a canard for years that Marvel movies are going to go the way of the Western at some point, which is to say that they are the most fashionable mainstream mode of storytelling at the movies. And eventually audiences will, you know, there will always be Marvel movies just as there will always be Westerns, but their frequency will be lower and they won't seem as important to the culture. I think there's some truth to that, but a more apt comparison is sort of like the kind of disaster movies that we saw in the seventies. So we saw, you know, in 1974, Three of the top 10 movies at the box office. Number two is Towering Inferno. Number five is Earthquake. Number seven is Airport 1975. These three movies were massive in the culture. They featured movie stars. They felt like they were what mainstream audiences really wanted. Folks like Irwin Allen made a bundle of money making these movies. Cut to one year later, the biggest movie is Jaws. Cut to three years later, the biggest movie is Star Wars. And the culture has completely moved on from these disaster movies. It doesn't mean that we don't get disaster movies. Of course we do. You and I saw a lot of great disaster movies in the 90s and the 2000s. We watched the sort of like Independence Day 2012 wave. Those movies are always going to work, but they're not necessarily the lifeblood of the box office. The question for me is like, at what point will Marvel not be the lifeblood? Because it's going to happen because it happens to every subgenre of story in the business. Nothing has come along yet that could replace it, but something will. The business is just so dependent on the superhero genre. If you look between what
2: Marvel is doing with Marvel Studios, you look at what Sony is doing with its Marvel properties and spinning off all of the villains into their own franchises. If you look at what DC is doing for Warner Brothers, the superhero genre has sort of subsumed other genres. Batman is a crime film. That's a serial killer movie. If you look at Guardians of the Galaxy, that's a space opera. Ant-Man, that's a family comedy. I mean, all of these movies are other genres that have been pigeonholed into the superhero genres. Joker is a great example. That is a psychological thriller type movie, an examination of a man's psyche, but it is souped up as a superhero movie and it grows to a billion dollars. That is the sweet spot for studios right now. Free guy. If you look at that. That's basically a superhero movie. It's not a hero in the traditional sense, but there's a guy with superhero powers and it's a comedy. So, I think that these, these, the, the superhero genre has metastasized so much that it consumes so much of the movie calendar and the audience is demanding those elements in order for it to be considered theatrical. They're just not interested in seeing something that doesn't have that element to it in theaters for the most part. There are exceptions, but I think that is what the business wants right now.
0: It's it's definitely bigger than anything that has ever come before it, and, and has withstood more than any other kind of you know mode of storytelling. That being said, I think what everything that you just described is a series of movies that are deemed spectacles, that are deemed special, that are deemed only, you can only get them in this specific kind of story. And I just don't think it will last forever. I, I don't think that that means that Marvel will necessarily be failing anytime soon, but I don't think that it can last forever. And the fact that we don't really have any hint of what could come next is fascinating. I think that has dovetailed with all of the concern about the future of theatrical movie going and the fact that we're in a bounce back period. But one thing that I've noticed is despite the fact that a lot of films are doing good business, you talk about this on the show every week, there are a lot fewer shows or a lot fewer films that are doing good business. Like we're we're now getting $100 million, you know, mainstream comedies like the Lost City is like doing pretty good business at the box office. But we don't don't have four of those. We have one of those right now. You know, we have one Sonic the Hedgehog 2. We have one Doctor Strange 2. Whereas if you look back four or five years ago, obviously we had two, three, four, five movies at a time that were crossing thresholds like this. If it comes back in a more material way to the two, three, four, five, and that's actually where I think superhero movies are more threatened because more different kinds of films are going to be able to succeed in that way. If not, you might be right. You might ju- We might just be in a place where this is the only kind of movie, give or take of Fast and the Furious or James Bond, that can really, really rise above globally. At the center of all is Feige. I mean, this is Kevin Feige's vision.
2: This is a remarkable run of 28 movies from the leadership of one person. But... At some point, I mean, everybody loses their touch. I mean, I remember back in the early mid 2000s when American Idol was generating 30 million viewers and Jeff Zucker, who was then running NBC, said, at some point, it will be uncool to watch American Idol. And he was right. At some point, it will be uncool to watch Marvel movies. And we don't know where, when that's going to happen, but it is the singular vision of one guy and everyone has their moment. You know, there will be a time, it will come. So it's, it's really interesting to see if this will be one year, two years, 10 years, 20
0: years. That's the big question. I think a pretty significant turning point will be what happens with the development of his Star Wars movie. Because this is the, fir- the first thing that he's doing that isn't a Marvel thing in decades. And obviously, the Star Wars movie brand is in a little bit of disrepair. The Star Wars TV brand is in a great place, but the movie brand is in a little bit of a tricky spot. And he's being brought in there in some ways to revive the movie franchise storytelling. But what happens if he falls in love with that world? What happens if he wants to make more of those movies? What happens if he wants to start a new universe? I don't know. I don't know his ambitions necessarily, but I think you're right that everyone's time comes. I just hope that that movie actually happens. I mean,
2: there is now a graveyard of potential Star Wars movies out there. I mean, Ryan Johnson was doing one. The Game of Thrones guys was doing, they were doing one. Patty Jenkins was doing one. Uh, You know, we'll see if it actually happens. I hope it does. Fingers crossed. But, you know, at least for the next three, four years, we're probably not getting a Star Wars movie in theaters. All right. Thank you to Sean Fennessy for joining us today. Sean is the host of the Big Picture podcast on The Ringer. He's the head of content for The Ringer as well. Thanks for joining us. Matt, love this show. Thanks for having me on. All right, we are back with the call sheet, my daily prediction. Craig, did you see the number on the Tom Brady Fox deal?
1: 375 million for 10 years? 10 years,
2: 375 million was the number that New York Post reported, which would about double what Joe Buck is making at ESPN. Uh, seems high, right?
1: It does seem high, but this is Fox's big splash, right? They lost everybody.
2: Yeah. I mean, I have some sources close to this deal who told me the number is indeed real. Fox kind of pushed back on that number, which is funny because obviously the Murdochs own Fox and the Murdochs also own the New York Post. Um, So they were kind of pushing back on their own outlet. But (laughs) even if it's in that ballpark, that is a huge, huge raise. And my prediction is, is that Tom Brady in the Fox football booth will do almost nothing for ratings. You've been on this beat. I have. I I care very deeply about this because I think the spending in the sports broadcasting universe is out of control right now. And the ratings show that it doesn't really matter who is broadcasting these games.
1: Yeah, viewership is driven by just the sport itself. No one, it doesn't matter that Herb Street and Al Michaels are at Amazon. I'm going to watch it because it's the only place I can watch it.
2: Yeah, I mean you have to have a certain level of competence and a certain level of audience around the broadcaster, but you know, whether it's Al Michaels or Troy Aikman or uh you know, Tony Romo, it it doesn't really matter or at least it doesn't matter to the extent that you are paying through the nose for these people. Football is already A loss leader for many of these networks you know they make a lot of money on it but it costs a lot for the rights and to produce it they're just making their margins even slimmer and i know why they're doing it this is so important to their brands and they want the nfl to give them the best games and it's sort of an arms race right now um you could for more on this you can get a lot more from brian curtis and david shoemaker over on the press box pod where they dive into this in greater depth my take, though, is that I just don't think deals like this move the needle.
1: Well, do you do you think there was any real stiff competition to bring in Brady, considering CBS has got Romo and Nance, ESPN just brought in Buck and Aikman, uh, NBC's doing, I think, Tarrico and Collinsworth. Like, was there a lot of competition to get Brady? Fox seemed like the only place he could land. I, I think there
2: was when he announced he was retiring. But don't forget here, we don't know when this deal is going to start. Well, it's whenever he retires, yeah, it's like a it's the most bizarre announcement that Lachlan Murdoch made on the or Fox earnings call. It wasn't even like a press release they put out they this was this is something that is going to happen at some point, but we have no idea when Brady's going to retire now.
1: well, you know I, <laughs> a, a year or two, Max I think yeah, the, the the first big head hit that he gets, he's retiring, <laughs> yes. I'm sure his wife really pushed for him to make this deal and retire ASAP.
2: Uh, But a lot of people thought that he wouldn't go into straight broadcasting. He's kind of, you know, positioned himself as being above all that. And, you know, I thought maybe he would do something more like what the Mannings do, where they have kind of resisted the traditional deal and now have their own production company where they're doing the Manning cast and doing a bunch of other things. But, you know, when you put... Uh, you know, $375 million in front of someone's face, they're probably going to take it.
1: I'll say one thing about Brady is he's done a great job or his team has done a great job at kind of rebuilding his image to go from a villain to kind of a likable, lovable goof at times. He's on TikTok. He makes a lot of jokes on Twitter. I'm sure it's not actually him. I'm sure it's some marketing intern doing it for him. But Brady is very likable now, which is kind of a huge turn from like what I thought of him in like the mid 2000s.
2: Yeah, and they've done the you know brand marketing via streaming show as well. Like, did you see any of Man in the Arena? No. I watched about 20 minutes of it, and you I see enough of him
1: in the fall. You know what I mean? I don't need to totally. I I watched all the Super Bowls. Yeah, I mean, you can tell pretty quickly
2: on these streaming shows what is propaganda Mm -hmm. and what is legitimately interesting. Like I lasted about 20 minutes of the Serena Williams show i lasted about 20 minutes of the brady show they're not the last dance They're, you know you can tell this is just image you know management uh via via tv show uh all right that is the show for today i want to thank sean Fennessy of the big picture and the ringer.com for coming on the show and i want to thank producer craig horbeck and i want to thank you see you
1: next time this episode is brought to you by state farm